Welcome back to Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim at SNSBC and Robbie at Cowboy Ventures. We're super excited to have Curtis, the CEO of Clean Lab, on our podcast. Clean Lab is improving machine learning models by fixing data. So welcome, Curtis. Hey, it's good to be here. Nice to see you. Awesome. Well, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that we start by going all the way back to the beginning and really understanding the founding story. So Curtis, can you walk us back all the way to the founding of Clean Lab? And from my understanding, it was pioneered at MIT. So why don't you kind of walk us through where the idea came from? Yeah, sure. So I initially really wanted to improve human learning. And so I was working with massive open online courses at MIT and building their cheating detection system. So how can you automatically verify that like a certificate earned online is a valid certificate? And this was a complex project. We ended up making a lot of progress and MIT and Harvard still use the work that we did for about a thousand courses. But we wanted to extend this generally for every course which required machine learning. So we could train on data and then figure out if someone is cheating or not, and also be able to deliver the ideal perfect problem for every student to like maximize their learning. So what happened was most of the labels were very noisy in this problem. For example, people would just like go get a coffee. So they're just, it's not that they're not learning, they're just busy or they haven't done anything wrong, but like they had two accounts with the same IP because their brother and sister are working together. So it looks like maybe they're copying each other. And so we had this issue where we had a lot of noisy labels and real world data And so when we tried to train the machine learning models to be able to predict cheating or predict the best answer, we ran into this issue that at the time, this is in like 2014, machine learning and AI actually could not train accurate machine learning classifiers when you had noisy labels. It just wasn't a thing. And there wasn't a good framework for that to work generally for any classification task. And so that's what I did for my PhD. So I spent the next six years at MIT building a new framework of theory and algorithms That's a subfield of machine learning called confident learning. And out of confident learning spun a way that you could take any data set and automatically find the label issues in that data set. And so this was met with a lot of skepticism, right? It's kind of wild. How can a data set just automatically find errors in itself? Wouldn't that be amazing if you could do that for yourself, like find all the errors in your knowledge, you know? So this felt very um, sort of bizarre to people. And so I got a lot of pushback and I had trouble publishing in the beginning, even though we were able to show that this worked. And so what I did in order to deal with that skepticism, my sort of comeback was to actually open source the code. And so the original release of Clean Lab, which in the early days as a grad student at MIT, it was actually just a reply to all of the sort of critics who were saying, hey, I don't believe that this actually works. And so my reply was, okay, well, the code is open source now run it on your own data set, and you can see the label issues in that data set. And so that made a big difference. And then after that, we showed that you could find actually errors in every single most commonly used machine learning data set across the field. So that's MNIST, ImageNet, and people were shocked to find that like 10% of ImageNet is completely wrongly labeled. And even MNIST, like which has been cited 40,000 times, actually has like hundreds of label errors in it even though most of those papers assumed it was perfect. CIFAR 10, if you're familiar, Caltech 256, Google's quick draw data set has millions of errors in it, all found automatically without any human intervention 
using CleanLab. And so we just started to see more and more how pretty much every major data set had it. And then it became natural to build a company because nowadays and every day that progresses, more and more companies make data-driven decisions and train machine learning models to achieve what they're doing. And that requires good data. And so it, it was just a natural transition from there. And so yeah, maybe talk about, I remember actually, yeah, your research at MIT was definitely the core idea of this, but you also had your past experiences, I remember, right? You're working in some industry and you noticed a lot of things. So maybe talk about that. Very curious, like how you also believe that not just the, the research project will work, but this is actually what the industry as a whole really needed and that actually can be packaged as a product. So let me talk about like some of the learnings, you know, taking this as a research idea into like, okay, this has to be a product company and this is what the product will look mm. like. What is the thinking behind that? Yeah, thanks, Tim. Totally. So initially it was like, you know, we've got the research that we're doing at MIT. It's extremely exciting. It's very cool to see you can do this. But I actually spent 2016 at FAIR, Facebook AI Research and Jan LeCun's group in the New York office. And it was an incredible experience. Jeff Hinton, many people will recognize that name, but if you haven't heard of him, he's sort of a forefather of modern AI. He came and visited, and one of his most exciting shares that he had in his talk was that he found one label error in MNIST. And I was like, okay, this is like, he's won the Turing Award with Jan LeCun and Yashio Bengio, and you know, it's like the Nobel Prize of Computer Science. And he's very excited about this. And we're at Facebook in Facebook's leading AI research office, and they're very excited about this. And they only found one label error. And I'm building something that finds, you know, like millions of label errors in any data set for any company. That seems kind of relevant. So that was like a first realization. A second one was that the project I was working on at Facebook was actually the rankings of comments on Facebook. So people were upvoting and downvoting whether they liked something or not. And that would determine how high it was placed. But it turned out that a lot of times people were just upvoting things based on like if they liked the person, not the comments. So if you were on the political spectrum and you really liked the candidate, you would just upvote even if they said something you disagreed with. And so we were able to find lots of label errors in that data and improve those rankings. So that was an immediate thing. That was at Facebook. The next summer I went to Amazon and Amazon was training their Alexa device. And that data set that they were training on, actually you'll find this fascinating, they had no way to know when the devices don't wake up, right? Because, you know, if you have a device and you're in Palo Alto or San Francisco or Boston or Mumbai, and you say the word to it and it never wakes up, and that means it never sends the data to Amazon servers. They don't know it didn't wake up. They don't know that their model didn't work. They get no feedback. So how are they supposed to measure their false negative rate? How can they know how good their customer service is? And we all know how much Amazon cares about customer experience. And so what we were able to do with Clean Lab is we were able to take data sets where we already had some of the labels and some of the data that had been collected, and we were able to measure what is the false positive rate because we can find label errors. And we can measure what is the true positive rate because we know what good data is too, and what is the true negative rate. And then we were able to use those three numbers to calculate the false negative rate. So we were able to solve that problem. So I was like, okay, this is very important to Amazon. The next time I went to Oculus Research, they had to build new data sets to build Meta and this whole new virtual world, but they actually had a lot of trouble getting the original data sets because getting good data is hard. And so I used a bunch of tactics to and things from Clean Lab to get high quality data. And then the next summer after that, now we're in 2019, I went to Google and Google had this issue where they had 50 million examples of like the, you know, when you say, hey, Google or okay, Google, and the device wakes up like your Pixel smartphone, but they had it in 50 languages. And so they had no way they could check them all. And so we just used CleanLab to automatically filter that data set, find errors and train a better model. 
So it just became really clear that pretty much every major tech company needed this type of technology. And then after I graduated, we had some offers for like potential acquisitions of the open source and some things that started to show there's real value. And then we got a call from Wells Fargo that they're building, you know, a team around this and can they buy a product? And I was like, oh, crap, need to build that product. And so put the team together after that. Awesome. No, it's a fascinating history. And it sounds like the story behind Clean Lab goes like so far before the company was actually founded. I also want to talk a bit about your co-founders and why you decided to work with both of them, because they both from, you wrote an awesome kind of history blog post of the company, and it seems like both had really strong open source experience. So like, what were you looking for? Because I think a lot of founders, like figuring out who to work with is just one of the most important decisions. So just your kind of context of like what was special about them and why you thought that they were the best people to build Clean Lab with. They are the best people to build Clean Lab with. I am grateful and blessed to work with them every day. This is not just something I'm saying like in my role because it's the right thing to say. Like I am genuinely grateful. Here's why I've worked with them for 10 years. And when I first met Anish and Jonas, so Anish is our CTO and co-founder. Jonas is our chief scientist and co-founder. The first five years I worked with Jonas, I mostly just went hiking with him. And it wasn't even like that professional. I just knew he was like a really smart guy in machine learning at MIT. I didn't really realize quite how smart he was, but I knew he was like a cool guy. I got along with him and he was somebody I just wanted to foster and I respected. And then Anish was somebody who I knew like immediately was kind of like the brainiac of MIT. He like did his undergrad at MIT, his master's at MIT, then his PhD in like the top, it's called the Parallel Distributed Operating Systems Group. And these two people, just I admired them. I'll put it that way. And I wanted to be their friend. I was their fan. I was proud to, I would like to work for them one day. But I never tried to start a company with them in the beginning. I just wanted to build a mutual admiration and respect and try to do interesting things together. And so we ended up eventually publishing a paper that was nominated for Best Paper Award in NeurIPS. And I think that garnered a lot of mutual trust with each other. And then we also went on some hikes and where we had to rely on each other. And we actually built like a deep and reliable friendship prior to ever even considering working together as co-founders. And by the time that all of this Clean Lab stuff really started to take off, there was an enormous sort of mutual admiration and respect. And so it was a natural next step. I'd also love to hear, I think the personal side is really important, but also from the professional side too, like what were you looking for to compliment you as a founder? 100%. So I did my PhD in clean lab specifically, like how do you fix and find label errors in data? But the thing is, if you want to fix any data set for any model, for any company, for anyone in the world, you need to be able to train any machine learning model for like any task that comes up. And the best person I knew in machine learning at MIT was Jonas. After Jonas did his PhD with Tommy Akla, who's like, if you're not familiar with Tommy, but he's led a lot of things in machine learning at MIT, super prolific machine learning professor at MIT. Jonas did his PhD with him much faster than I did. He was very quick. He was also the guy I always went to for questions when I was a grad student. After he finished his PhD, he went to Amazon and he spent four years working with Alex Smola, who's the head of AI at Amazon, worked directly with him. And Jonas built, you've heard of AWS, I'm sure. And you've probably heard of SageMaker. SageMaker is like the tool to deploy ML models on AWS. Well, how does it train those models? It uses AutoGluon, which is basically Amazon's competitor of Google's AutoML. And I would say more advanced in a lot of ways. And you can look into that yourself. But it's called AutoGluon. And it just trains like dozens of models automatically for you and then gives you the best one. And it just works. Well, the guy who built that 
is Jonas Mueller. So he spent four years at Amazon being able to take any data set and train any model. And so what do we need to do at CleanLab? Well, I know how to fix a data set, right? But I don't know how to build some ML infrastructure that works for any company anywhere for any model. But Jonas did. And Jonas spent four years building one of the best ones in the world that Amazon relies on every day. And so he covered me on all the machine learning side that I needed to build the business. And then I needed someone who could lead an engineering team because we have a SaaS product and we need the infrastructure and the reliability to actually serve this thing at scale. And so I'm beginning to know Anish, who's our CTO. And Anish is like one of the smartest people I know in systems. And if you just look him up, he's extremely prolific. He has like, I don't know, 6,000 citations on Google. He has over 30,000 stars on GitHub. Like this guy builds things and open sources things beyond like anyone I've ever met. Just for comparison, that's more stars than any competitor in our entire space combined, including CleanLab. And he's a single human being. 30,000 stars on GitHub is just like unheard of. He has like over a million views on YouTube for just teaching Git and teaching system programming. Like that's bizarre for like one human being to do all these things. And so to be able to have him as a CTO is an honor, but it's also, I can completely trust him to handle the engineering side. And so I knew I could handle sort of the business side in terms of the clean lab and knowing all about what we do. I did my whole PhD in it. Jonas handled the machine learning and Anish handled the engineering. That's awesome. Actually, I, I didn't know all those stories. Um, so <laughs> I want to go over the, maybe a bit more on the project, right? Clean lab. I want to dive deeper. We don't have PhDs in machine learning, so we don't know all the details how CleanLab actually works. But I at least want to maybe talk a little about how it roughly works. And a lot of things when it comes to automated, you know, so operations, I realize there's a lot of trade-offs, right? Like there might be cases that work extremely well. There might be cases that doesn't truly all work all the time. Maybe talk about like what is the sort of like the limitation of CleanLab or yeah. like roughly how works the implementation of the clean lab? And is there more research you're trying to do to also like improve the current state of the art as well? Oh yeah, I love it. Yeah, this is one of the most interesting things to me because it's like, where are we going and how are we progressing? So where does it work well? It works well if an ML model, so some kind of classifier can train on your data and predict your labels like with like 80% accuracy or higher. 70% is okay. Once you start to have like very, very poor models, even if you had perfect data, so like no outliers, no data errors, no label errors, like you had the most perfect data set ever, you know, if you were getting like 50% accuracy with your model on that type of data set, then CleanLab will not be very helpful. The model's not providing enough signal for us to be able to use like automated ways of doing that. We would need to take a subset of the data the model can do better on, do a little better there, and then there's a lot of iterative approaches. So it's more work and it's not entirely automated. But if your data is like reasonably, if you had perfect data, so you had no issues, then that's our bread and butter. Like if you can get even 80% accuracy, we can work with that. The key thing here is disambiguating data noise and your model noise. For folks who are like familiar, this is called aleatoric and epistemic uncertainty. I won't get into that unless, you know, you guys would like me to. But basically, there are different sources of noise in a task. And our goal is to disambiguate them. And that's a bit of how the project works by estimating a bunch of stuff. Happy to chat more about if you're interested. In terms of how do we build, you know, or like what are places where Clean Lab needs to improve or places, you know, tasks that are very difficult for us. As the number of classes grows and the number of data points grows, we can approach these, but it, 
what you will read online is very different than what we actually do in practice. So basically, if you have billions of data points, so like some of the customers that we work with are like in the top, they sell devices that you use every day. Let's put it that way. And those companies have massive data sets and they have massive number of classes. Some of them have 50,000 classes. If you were to read the Confident Learning paper and read about how CleanLab works, you would see that internally we're building a matrix of the number of classes by the number of classes. And so that scales quadratically. And so what we end up doing is we actually skip that whole process. We have to do a lot of optimizations in order to get an approximate solution. And so that's one thing that we have to deal with is just scalability. And, and that's what we've done a lot of work on in the last year. And I'd say we've actually made very tremendous progress. Another shortcoming is regression. So this is something that's coming out this year. So all of the targets that we've been supporting are labels. So you have like an image and it's either a dog or a cat or a frog, or it contains you know certain objects, but it's not like how red is it or how doggy is it where it's like a regression value, you know, a real value target. So that's coming out in the open source this year, which we're excited to announce. But that was a shortcoming for like the last four years that a lot of people asked about. And then a final place where we can't really help you is if your data really doesn't have like true labels. So I can give an example of that. You have some image and like you have four different types of lizards in your class, but like it's a blurry image of like this green lizard looking thing. How are you supposed to know what the true label is? And so if you have tons of data like that, what we end up doing is mostly telling you, hey, these are outliers, like you should probably toss them out. But you may want to handle that in a different way where there really isn't a true label and you're okay with that. And that would take a different approach. So I love this kind of like, where is it best suited? I also want to talk about the kind of like clean lab growth trajectory, because if I'm looking at like a chart of your star history, which is, I guess, good, like kind of proxy for just overall momentum, like it looks like 2020 things really started taking off. And you talked about Wells Fargo reaching out and wanting to use this. Like what kind of happened and what did you do from your team side to actually just like get this in more hands of users? Or was it pretty organic where as soon as you had some like case studies or like blogs and content out there, folks just kind of came to Clean Lab and started adopting it? 2020 was organic. I guess I'm proud of that. 2020 was really completely organic. We had no company. We raised no money until October of 2021. We didn't even consider making a company until like August, September of 2021. So those two years, that was just organic growth. People started using it. I tweeted and like posted a couple of things on LinkedIn that like, hey, I'm a grad student and I built something that seems to be working for pretty much any data set. Like this seems cool. Maybe check it out. And I think people liked it. I think they thought it was really cool. And people were like, wow, this grad student is just like, pumping out algorithms that are seem to be pretty useful. Like that seems like a nice thing. And I think people just started sharing it. And so most of the traffic was really organic. Then we started publishing some papers and they did very well. They were well-received. They did well in the conferences. And so people heard about it from those. But yeah, those first two years were mostly just people actually sharing it. No real marketing. And so, yeah, people sharing it, is it all academic people? Like how do people actually even find you? Did they read your paper? Or just other ways able to actually, because for the most part, I feel like Clean Lab, when you just started, it was mostly going into academic conferences, right? You know, probably the best ones, right? You know, to talk about the work you guys did. But how did you expand from that audience? Every machine learning team have data, right? Have labels. And how did they start getting to pick you up as well? Yeah. So the thing is, is that this is a beautiful thing about AI and machine learning. And it's part of how we positioned ourselves. It's part of the reason why the three founders of Clean Lab all have PhDs. 
there is a beautiful tight intersection of machine learning and AI and academia. It's a problem. It's a pro and a con. A lot of people who are in academia complain about how basically a single tweet can cause an academic paper to get thousands of citations. And so people in academia are like, whoa, that seems problematic. But at the same time, there's a positive. And the positive is that if you are publishing, then the people who are reading your papers, many of them work at Google, Microsoft, tech companies, Chase Morgan, big banks, finance industry. And because nowadays, pretty much every major technology company or company in any industry that needs technology has to rely on some form of data analytics or machine learning. And so those papers, even though it might seem very academic, they're actually touching the same industries that are our customers. And so if you go and you look at like, you know, GitHub, or you look at our studio signups aren't public, but just for context, like the people who have organically signed up with no marketing are like Walmart, Chevron. These are just people who have signed up, you know, just like individual users, not like an enterprise level thing, but people who are just trying the software like Deloitte, TikTok, you know, ByteDance, and just like major consulting groups, major technology companies. You can look online, Tim, what's that website you shared with me one time that like lets you see all the companies who use your open source? All open source insight. Yeah. Yeah. And if we look, we can see that actually it's not universities that are mostly using CleanLab. The number one is Microsoft and then Alibaba and then Google, Tencent, Huawei. These are global large companies, IBM, Amazon, NVIDIA. So just companies all over the world because they all have data science groups. Then the data scientists read the papers, they learn about it, they share with the engineers and you get this nice organic traffic driven from the open source. And that's a really beautiful thing about the open source model. And so how are you taking advantage of the fact that today AI is all the hype and it just kind of highlights the importance today, but maybe even more so in the future of having a tool like CleanLab to make sure these models actually are trained on good data. So like maybe talk a bit about your like positioning and messaging, given everything that's going on in the market that is great for CleanLab. I love the question, but I'll rephrase it. I think instead of thinking of how we can take advantage of it, I would argue how can other people take advantage of CleanLab? Right now we have seen that, for example, like ChatGPT out of OpenAI and then Google's Bard, which is built on Lambda and then Anthropic's Claude. These are all the rage, right? So like, what is it? ChatGPT has like 200 million users or something. Just like totally the most prolific and widest used machine learning and AI application ever created. And this is just the beginning, right? But if you look into how these technologies were created, what made ChatGPT work? Well, what made it work was they took GPT-3 and they saw what outputs led to poor data quality and what outputs were like data that was not working well. They traced back to the data it was trained on. And then they had humans provide high quality data in the loop with a reinforcement learning algorithm to train ChatGPT. So the whole key to ChatGPT's success was actually providing better labeled data and better quality data. And if you look at the same thing with Dolly, Dolly has this video on Dolly's website where they're like, our number one issue is poorly labeled data. Because if you have some image and it's labeled dog, but it's actually a frog, we're going to generate dogs instead of frogs, you know? So what we realized is that, and this is something we knew prior to starting the company, but we didn't know that, for example, ChatGPT would take off in this year. But we knew that the most pervasive technologies that were going to touch, you know, hundreds of millions of people they rely on high quality data and high quality labels. Otherwise, you just can't train these massive models that are effective that depend on classification tasks. And so that's why we positioned ourselves to be the company that solves that task. So what do we do? We improve your data set automatically. 
we find your label errors automatically so that these large systems that are touching hundreds of millions of people can rely on an enterprise-level software that can automate this task that now the most pervasive AI technologies depend on. And what do you think is like the biggest challenge you face so far? Because it feels like everybody should just use this, which I'm sure that's the goal, right? Everyone that has machine learning should just all use Clean Lab because fixing your data, label data is such a powerful and super valuable value proposition. I'm sure everybody will love that. But I guess, number one, nobody even knows this product exists before, right? So there's probably the just like, hey, we're here. This actually works, right? What is sort of like the challenge you had to go through? Is it just telling people and do you get people to trust you? Or what other things you related since starting the company till now that, oh, these you know biggest challenge of getting people to just get it and use it and put it into production? I mean, there's the classic internal founder challenges, which is like the job is actually way more HR than you expect. And we grew the team, you know, 4X in the last year and there's all that stuff. But I think you're asking about external challenges. And I'd say the number one external challenge is education. So people know now, okay, I like Dolly. Like I like ChatGPT. I like these technologies. What they don't know is what made those technologies work. They don't know that like the key, even data scientists and people with PhDs and machine learning the classical traditional way that machine learning is taught is change your hyperparameters to improve the model. There are no classes. Actually, this is fun fact. We just taught the first class at MIT called Introduction to Data-Centric AI. You can check it out at dcai.csale.mit.edu. But prior to that course, that was the first in-person course, at least that I know of, there might be another one, that actually taught improving models by improving data. But there is no learning without something to learn, right? And so every machine learning task that's you know ever occurred that had data depended on that data and the quality of that data obviously influences the machine learning task. But this is just something people are starting to realize. And so we've seen highly prolific folks like Andrew Ng pushing out data-centric AI and that's been great. It's really good for Clean Lab. We're a fan of him. He's a fan of Clean Lab. Like this is great, but it's just the beginning. I think a lot of people just really don't yet know that the way you want to improve these models that's very effective is by improving the data. And so part of our effort to do the open source is actually to help educate. We could have spent millions of dollars on ads and we could have done marketing that way, or we can spend millions of dollars hiring one of the best world-class open source teams that output algorithms for free that people can use. And then they can realize, oh, this stuff works. So that was the approach that we took because we're trying to educate the world that, hey, you know, you can actually improve data to improve models. But that's really it, Tim. It's just getting people to see that Clean Lab, basically it's this. If you're on a website and it's like, oh, this product is going to improve my data, until you know that the biggest issue that's causing like your model not to work well is the data, then that's not useful to you. As soon as you know that, suddenly the product becomes the most important thing and you want to buy it. But it just takes time for people to get there. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Just even knowing that's a need you really need to focus on. Probably the education part is important. So let's talk about your product, right? Studio, CleanUp Studio. What does it do, right? If people can just download the GitHub open source, they have a clean Python package. Like what is the point for the products? And talk about like maybe some of the journey of learnings of building, designing this as well. Yeah, totally. So the open source requires you to obviously know how to write code. It's pretty easy to use. It's only one or two, three lines to do pretty much every major data-centric AI task. And I can list them all, but just if you're familiar, you know, anything you'd want to do to find issues in any type of data set. But the thing is, is that it's like a doctor, okay? It's going to tell you like what's wrong with you, but it's not going to fix the problem. So 
you need surgery, right? Like now, you know, okay, my data set has like 10% wrong stuff. And this is the different stuff. And some of these images aren't great. Some of this text data is wrongly labeled. Some of this tabular data has outliers. Okay, great. Now, you know, all that. I know everything that's wrong with me. How do I fix it? <laughs> and so that's what CleanLab Studio does. CleanLab Studio has interfaces that let you visualize and see all of these errors. Doesn't require any code. It lets you automatically improve your data set with just a few clicks. And there's a nice interface where you can sort all your data by the most likely erroneous data. So you can only spend your time on the data that's most important. That's like really important. And if you have millions of data points, you don't want to have your team looking at all million. You just want to look at the ones that are most important. And so that's part of the interface experience. You can see the data. You can see what's wrong. So once you've done that in the open source, now what do you have to do? You've got to build your ML pipeline and you've got to write the code to like train your models and find a good model. Well, I mentioned Jonas Mueller, our chief scientist. He built like one of the world's best auto ML tools. And so obviously we rely on his knowledge and we're able to train tens, you know, dozens of models and we can get you a really good model trained on your cleans data set and we deploy that for you. And so in a single platform, whereas in the open source, you just find issues. That's pretty much it. And then you need to write code to do everything else. What CleanLab Studio is, is it takes the best of the open source with some improvements and then it finds those issues for you, gives you a nice interface where you can see them. You can improve the data as much as you need to, and then trains a model for you, but it doesn't just train one. It's actually training dozens of models in the background and gives you the best one. And then with a button, you just deploy it. You can use it at your company. And so now you've been through kind of a couple early phases at CleanLab. So like open source, now you have a product. Can you talk a bit about how your focus has changed and adapted over time? And right now, how you kind of juggle trying to grow adoption of the open source, thinking about product, thinking about like your team. And I don't know if you're at a point where you're thinking about building out more business hires, but how your kind of focus from when you first decided to start Clean Lab to now has changed. Yeah. So the first, when we had like three people, just the three founders, the job was so different, right? I wrote like all of Clean Lab 2.1's release. I think I contribute like 90% of that code. Prior to that, I contribute 100% of all the code. I was the only author on Clean Lab for like the first three years. And most of that I was doing in grad school. Once we then hired about four or five engineers, so the team effectively doubled or tripled. At that point, I started writing less code and I started focusing more on hiring and a little bit of organization, initial like customers. How do we get just some basic pilots set up so that we can learn how's this stuff working for people, getting feedback, doing a lot of PM work. Then we grew a little more. So we sort of doubled again. Now we're at like 10 to 15 range. I am writing a lot less code. At this point, I started to focus more on stuff that I did not want to deal with, but is absolutely necessary to run a company. So finances, like a bunch of hiring things, like what are our policies? We have a really favorable sort of HR setup where it's like unlimited PTO and we have people living all over the world. We're a fully remote company. We're opening an office in the Bay Area shortly, but for now we've been fully remote. And there's a lot of complexity to having at this point, you know, a 25 person team that's fully remote, but just a lot of like regulation stuff if using Gusto. So then I hired people to take care of that. And then there was like a lot of branding stuff and setting up, like when we reach out to people, what do things look like? What is a consistent message? What is our story? Then we did another hiring push from like 10, 15 to 25. And then I was basically full-time on hiring and a few other things, still continuing some customer conversations. Then once the team was at 25, 
I was always involved a lot with the engineering and the open source, but I've taken more of a step back and let Jonas and Anish deal with that. And I'm pretty much 100% customer focused right now. And then we'll do our Series A. And at that point, I'll do some leads for hiring, like marketing, director of marketing, head of sales, and some people to help more with the customer side, but sort of solo swinging the customers and sales right now, because we're a very technology and engineering heavy company, because we're building something that's never been built before. Yeah, I think one probably interesting question is, you're all academic background. Obviously, you all worked in industry and in various different levels, but you know your team actually are probably primarily academic backgrounds as well. What are things that you've learned? Because I'm sure you have your own journey, right? Now running a company, you know, going full swing, you know, building a products and stuff like that. Is there any particular lessons trying to maybe prepare them into a product mindset or things they have to unlearn or new learn, or just like a secret up and every everyone you hired are basically fully ready to go from day one? I just wonder, is there any unique advantage or challenge when it comes to have a much more dominant academic background team? Yeah, thanks, Tim. I think it's a really hard question. And I think that, yeah, there are a few key things. I think everyone's different. You have to manage people differently to sort of have compassion with how they work. And it's not just an intellectual game or an academic game or someone has like the best background. I think if you really want to be an effective leader, you have to go beyond just empathy and compassion with your employees, but actually inspire them about what excites them about the product and make sure that they are feel valued and they know that the work they're doing and like how that work goes directly into a customer's hands and makes a customer's life better. I think solving that for every employee is absolutely key to their growth and success at the company. HR is probably the most important job of like CEO founder role, even though it's often under highlighted, it's almost always under highlighted. There are a few things we look in terms of how we hire. We try to hire people who have three to four years experience. If someone is exceptional, we'll hire a new grad. Some of our best employees have been new grads, actually. Just really incredible people who are just sharp, motivated, and just really talented. And yeah, there are definitely massive exceptions to anything I'm saying right now. But at the same time, like if you're just trying to go for something tried and true, where people sort of have an idea what to do when you give them a task, it's best to try to find people who have like a couple years at least of startup experience and have like worked with all these tools and built similar SaaS products. And so if you look at our team, you'll notice that everyone's from a pretty stellar academic background, but also everybody has, not everybody, but most of our employees have like at least three years of experience, either building other startups or working in industry. Awesome. And One question that we love to end on, and I think particularly because I think this is your first venture-backed startup. So maybe your thoughts on going through this for the first time, like what's been most surprising and what's been like hardest about like building a venture-backed company for the first time? I'd say the most surprising thing is how hard it is. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. I think any founder who tells you that it's really easy They're just trying to like make themselves look better. It's a tough job. I think it's probably the hardest job. I don't know. I don't know. Everybody's job is tough, but I'm shocked at how much it requires. You really have to be present all the time. And I'm someone who deeply cares about relationships with people. And I think that actually advice to any founder who's out there, be cognizant of the fact that it's easy to get into a mind state where you are deriving your sense of self-worth and value based on your company's achievements. When the reality is your true value comes with from how you treat people and from what kind of person that you are like from within. 
And I think that it's very easy to lose that sense of self because you become the company. So that's really hard. And that's an easy pitfall to fall into. In the Bay Area, there's a lot of like self-help and self-motivation. There's like a lot of this stuff. And I think, so I wasn't from the Bay Area. I was from the East Coast. You know, I spent all my time at MIT. It's all about logic. It's all about, you know, maximizing the accuracy of everything and discovering knowledge. No one ever told me to like look at inward at my feelings. Like that was never something I heard at MIT. And then you come to the West Coast and you hear that all the time. And it's natural to be judgmental if you're not being self-aware and to think, oh, this is hokey. But there's something to it. There's a reason why people have discovered it. And it's because there's a lot of people doing a lot of hard stuff out here. And there's a lot of startups. And it's really easy to lose that sense of self where you just work every day. You're constantly checking Slack. You're constantly checking notifications. And the reality is if you fall into this sort of cycle of like work as hard as you can, be stressed out, then work as hard as you can, take a break, and you just stay you start to actually lose the bigger picture of like, what are you trying to achieve? So you have to actually take time in your day to make time for yourself, to make sure you understand why you're doing this and make sure you're treating yourself well so you can be a really good you know, CEO or founder for your team. And I think you'll find that if you take those five hours out of your week or 10 hours out of your week to do that, all of your customer interactions will go better. All of the work you're doing with your team will go better. And you'll actually be working like the 10 hours less, but all the work you do ends up being way more productive. And suddenly you'll be like, oh, I'm much luckier. Like things seem to be working out better for me. And so, yeah, I just encourage people to be aware of that and to try to love yourself a bit. I think it's uh, you'll find it's a little bit of an easier experience that way. I can't think of a better way to end this podcast. I think that is very sage advice. And this was awesome. Thank you so much, Curtis, for doing this with us. We really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure. It was all mine. Thanks. (laughs) 